In Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariah, king of Elisar, Shadar Lomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shador Lamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Shadar Lamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Kirnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim. Some of these are very hard to say confidently. And the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishphat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Chedorlamor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot and with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedar Lamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Esco, and Mamre take their share. You know what? I got, as I prayed there, that God would allow us to be able to apply these truths to our life. After reading the passage, you're probably thinking, where in my life would that ever fit? <laughs> and, <laughs> and with the actual physical elements of the thing, hopefully never. <laughs> but it would be a sad day when International Falls came down and swiped things from Little Fork, and then we had to go after them, right? But <laughs> especially since some of you from International Falls are in here, it would make it awkward. <laughs> but... <laughs> But you know what, there, there is more to the story, I think, as we look at the things that are going on. 
I remember back at the time of our baccalaureate service, uh, I was doing some research for it on the Internet and some studying and thinking, and I wanted to challenge the young people concerning truth. And as I did, I came across this thing on YouTube that was uh, this, this guru. In fact, I think he's called Sad Guru, but it's spelled a little different, so I don't know that it means that he's actually sad. I think it's just, I don't know what it means, to be honest with you. It looks like it's a, a Hindu guy. Uh, the way that he's dressed up and stuff. And, and they were having this thing called Youth and Truth Conference that was out at Columbia University. And he had, a, so you have all these college age young people sat down with this guy that's supposed to be bringing the wisdom. And they get to ask him questions and listen to his answers. The first question was this young college student. And they said, how do you know the purpose for your life? And then this guy began to answer the question. He said, you know what the answer is to your question? You don't have a purpose. You need to get over yourself. Go do whatever you want. There's no hidden meaning. Just do what you want. Well, if there's no hidden meaning, then how can you even say do what you want? Who says that's the ultimate thing to do if there is no hidden meaning? And it was just, it was sad to watch the jaws drop on all these college students. I don't imagine Columbia University is a cheap institution to attend. And I don't imagine that Columbia University is all that easy to get into either. I would think that all these young people are probably there through a lot of effort on their own studying and through a lot of effort on their parents and maybe probably a lot of them going into debt for years to come to be able to attend this kind of a university. So you think about that. It means they're investing a lot of their future, a lot of their time, a lot of their efforts and study, a lot of their finances and their parents' finances in this institution and they just got told there's no purpose to your life. Well, then why do this? Why even sit through the rest of this conference if there's no purpose? Why uh, have you come to bestow so much wisdom upon us if there's no purpose? In fact, if there's no purpose, how do we even know that the wisdom that you're proclaiming is truly wisdom? Which I think does need to be questioned. All these young people sitting in front of that person and just got told that it doesn't matter if you're Hitler or Billy Graham. These young people that are starting out with all their hopes and dreams in life, looking forward to and finding, trying to find value in their life. Where's, where's my purpose? Where's my significance? Where's my importance? And he told them, there's billions of people just like you all over the world. You don't have any significance. Wow. You know what? If that's going to be the prevailing mindsets, no wonder there's school shootings. No wonder the suicide rates are climbing. And he was basing his on a faulty foundation of evolution. If evolution is true well then we're just a cosmic accident that's here for who knows how long and then it's all over and in the end, uh, who cares who did what? It's all over. But you know what? Thank God that's not the truth. The truth is that we were made in the image of God so every one of the billions of people bears the image of God so every one of the billions of people has significance. Our numbers don't minimize our significance. They enhance it because it's just more and more of the image of God all over this world. Well, I had a hundred questions for him probably if I was to sit and think about it long enough that I'd love to see him answer on the same foundation. Because, you know, I don't, I don't believe that evolution can even hold up to the questions that science brings to the table. How did this stuff get started to begin with? How, did, how do you get life out of no life? How do you get something out of nothing? It doesn't answer any of those questions. But then I want to ask this. If evolution's all there is, so it's all just naturalistic process, how do you end up with a whole group of young people sitting right in front of you dying to know what the purpose is for their life? Why do they even have a concept of purpose if there is no purpose? Why do we have a world that's filled with religion? Yes, contradictory religion, much false religion, but filled with religion. How can a naturalistic world make religious people? 
Why do we experience things like love? Why does any of that exist if all there is is chemical things to life? Why do we love and fall in love? Why do we experience hate also and fear? There are so many things that are unanswerable by this platform or this foundation of evolution. If there's no such thing as being significant, why do we have such a hunger for it? Why do we have to do things a certain way or want to do things a certain way because we feel that it makes us significant? Why do we grow closer in those relationships partly because it makes us feel significant? You know, the reason that I bring all this up is because when we get to the passage, we know what I find? I find that it deals with significance. Now, this is the reason why. Look at the big picture of what's going on. You've got five kings on this side and you've got four kings on this side. Right? The five kings over here have been paying tribute to and serving the, the kings over here for 12 years. For 12 years, they've been underneath the oppression of the other kings, underneath the dominance of the other kings. And they've got to the point where they said, you know what, enough is enough. Who does that guy think he is to have us be servants to him? We've got our own little areas. We've got our own little city-states. We've got our own territories that we're kings of. Who does he think he is to hold us uh, in, in this insignificant position? And so they tell him, you know what, it's done. We're done serving you. And he says, who do they think they are? They've been serving me for 12 years. This is my rightful position in this. Who do they think they are to tell me they're not serving me? And so he gathers his allies together. And he says, I know they got five kings down there, but us four kings, we can take them. And so they're going to come up and they're going to go in and teach them a lesson. And they do. And what is it all about? It's all about who's the top, who's the big show, right? Who's in charge around this place? Who's the significant one? And these people say, you're no more significant than we are, so we're casting you off. And he says, oh, yes, I am, and I'm going to show you. And so they come down and they take them over and they, they, they ransack their cities and they plunder their goods. They take their people, they take their stuff, and they hit the road and they leave there. And you know what? Finally, I finally realized what this was all about as I read through Genesis 14 several times. You know what it's about? Here's Abram. And Abram... At this point, he's got no skin in the game, right? None of those cities are his city. He doesn't own a city. He's living out by the Oaks of Mamre. In other words, by somebody else's orchard, right? Somebody else's tree grove. He's living out on somebody else's property, camped out for a while. He's kind of a, if you look at him in this picture, what is he? He's, he's, a, he's a new guy in town. He's the newbie. He's, a, he's kind of a wanderer. He's a drifter. Came through a, a while back, went down into Egypt during the famine. Just recently came back. But you know what? He, he doesn't own anything. He's just kind of drifting. You know, really doesn't have a doesn't have a family, no no offspring, no children, and so. But what does he have? He only has one thing: this covenant, this promise that God has given to him. In this battle for significance between these two areas, these two groups of kings, who's going to be the more significant? Who's going to be in charge? Abram's not even in the picture. He's not even part of the story until one thing happens. What's that one thing that happens? They take his nephew. They take Lot. You know what the, is the amazing thing? Is you got two groups of people warring over significance. Who's going to come out on top? And by the time you get to the end, the guy that's not even involved is shown to be the one of significance. Not a list of kings and every other person that's in here gives the king. In fact, it does it repeatedly a couple times, much to my chagrin as I had to read it. It repeats it a couple times. It gives the name of the king and the, and the city that they own or the territory that they own. When it gets to Abram, what does it say? Oh, he's the guy that's uh, staying on, on somebody else's property over by that group of trees over there. 
He's not really acknowledged as being a part of it. He's not, nobody's considering him to be all that significant. But you know what the amazing thing is, is that at the end, he is the significant one. Because what happens is, Abram finds out that they've taken Lot, and so he takes all of his men and says, let's, let's get ready to ride, we're going. We're going to get Lot back. No question about it. And then he has a couple of people that he's kind of made some alliances with too. He says, get your soldiers out here, we're going, we're going, let's, let's go get them. And he travels all those miles, he goes after him, and he wins the battle, and he brings back his nephew Lot, and he brings back all the people of Sodom and these other cities, and all those things. I kept racking my brain, why? Why did God put this in the Bible? Why did, why did God do this to begin with? And you know what the point is? The point is the significance of Abraham because of the covenant with God. When we look at this passage, that's what we're dealing with. People fighting over who was most significant, who had the right or the control over the area. And the answer in the end that everybody thought would have been, well, maybe it's five kings because there's more than one. Well, these guys look a little stronger. Who knows? You see the battle happen in the end. None of them. It's kind of like when God selects David as king. Right? They go to pick a new king, Saul. God gave them a man that they wanted. Somebody that stood head and shoulders above everybody, handsome, great-looking guy to put out on the horse in front of everybody and lead as the king. Gave him the one that they wanted. That didn't work out too well. So he says, now I'm going to give you the one I want, the one after my own heart. And he sends Samuel to David's father's house to pick out the new king. And they brought, starting with the oldest brother, they bring him in, and he looks at him, nope. Next one looks at him, nope. Next one looks at him, nope. They go through all David's brothers until finally at the end Samuel says, well, is that it? Do we got to run him through again? And they said, well, there's David. Nobody even called him to come in from the pasture. He was out keeping the sheep. Surely it's not David. Well, that's what's happening here with Abram. With Abram, you got all these kings lined up to be the top dog. And in the end, who is? The guy that nobody even thought of. <laughs> the guy that's just kind of camped out over there. Abram is the person of significance. You know what? We all strive for significance in our life. We all like those young college people. I don't care if you're, if you're 18 years old and just starting college, 22, 24, just getting out of college. I don't care if you're just starting your career, just starting your family, or if you're 70 years old and looking back on it, or even older, you still want to feel that you have some significance in his life. Abram is an older man at this point, and it's at that point that he gains his significance. Or maybe begins to recognize it. Or the world begins to be shown. You see, I think that's really the purpose of this whole event and this whole recording of it for our sake. Who's really has the significance? You know who has the significance? That guy that has no land. The guy that has no child. The guy that only has one thing. And that's a promise from God. God had given him this promise, this covenant, that whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. I think Abram is finally starting to see his own significance in this. I don't mean that he sees significance in himself. I think he finds his significance in God. But remember, not too long ago, when he went down into Egypt, he was afraid to tell people that his wife was his wife. And now all of a sudden, you see some one guy saying, grab your sword and let's go, but we're going to go after those four kings that just beat up those five kings, and we're going to get Lot back. There doesn't seem to be any hesitation. Really, that's the same guy that was afraid to say she's my wife? I think he's starting to realize God protected him in Egypt even though he did wrong. I think he knows now, although I won't say that he's learned it for good because he's going to make a few more doozy mistakes along the trail also. It's really more about God than it is about Abraham and God's faithfulness to us. But you know what? The one that contained the promise of God was the one with the true significance in this situation. You know, as we all strive and look to different things for our significance, 
we need to find it in the same place. We're significant because of our relationship with God, because we were created in His image to begin with, because we have a relationship with Him, because He was willing to lay down the life of His only begotten Son for us so that we could have a relationship with Him, so that we could have this eternal life. Our significance rests in Him. If you try to find your significance anywhere else, it fades. Everything else is changing, movable. Sometimes people put significance in talents. You know what? Talents fade. They go away. Our abilities to do things and accomplish things, as we get older, as we go on, those things fade. Some people put significance in their looks. Looks absolutely fade. Looks change. They, they go. Our jobs, our careers, our jobs go away. I remember back, oh, what was it, 20 years ago or so? Remember when there was kind of a middle management shift that hit America? And a lot of companies kind of restructured, and a lot of people lost their jobs, and, and a lot of people were struggling over, what do I do now? What, where's my value? Finances. People look for significance in finances and in position. Think back to like the Depression time, not that you can remember it, but uh, what we were told about the Depression time and when Wall Street crashed and people are jumping out of buildings. Why? Because their whole identity or their whole significance is bound up in their wallet, in their money. You know what, everything that you do and that kind, of, that kind of thing, it fades away. I was talking to a guy at our Bible study at the nursing home the other day, and he said, I used to be able to do a lot of stuff. Now I'm no good. I can't do anything. And I just looked at him and said, well, then it's a good thing you're a human being instead of a human doing. Your value is not in what you can accomplish. Your value is in that you represent the image of God. You bear the image of God. He's sitting in a wheelchair, can't get out of it. Whether he can get out of that wheelchair or not, he's valuable. That's the Christian ethic. That's the biblical ethic. If we find our significance in Jesus Christ, our significance is unchanging. It does not diminish as our talents diminish. It does not diminish as our looks diminish. It does not diminish as our wealth diminishes. It does not diminish as our health diminishes. It is unchanging. And that's what we're seeing in Abram. He's the most unlikely person of significance in the whole story. He really starts out to appear to be kind of a side detail, but actually he's the main element of the story. Is God does exactly what the promise was. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so Abram and a small amount of people would have no problem going up and taking rescuing Lot and bringing him back. You know what? This would be great encouragement for Israel. Remember, this is first written during the time of Moses. And Israel, just as he says, he brought up Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's, he, just, he tells Israel, I'm the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why? Well, at least at that time, they could look back and say, well, he did it with Abraham. He did it with... You know, he's, he's doing the same thing. So the significance that we find needs to be in Christ. Now, a couple things that we learn about this is that, first of all, true significance is found in covenant. True significance, that which is meaningful, is found in covenant relationship. Uh, you don't have to just look in the Bible. We see it around our culture. If you're going to enter into the most significant relationship of marriage that we experience... It's, that's a covenant. That's what it is. It's a, it's a covenant. You, you go through the process and you stand up here and you swear before God and man that you're going to perform these vows towards one another, that you're going to be faithful in, in want and in plenty and in sickness and in health and until death does us part. After the ceremony is over, you go over into the office and you sign it and witnesses sign it and the officiator person signs it. It's a license. It's a contract. It's a covenant. Your biggest decisions in life usually involve covenants. You're going to sign some papers when you buy a house. 
You're going to go in to buy a car. You're going to sign some papers. I'm buying a car too. These are all legal documents. They're all covenants. You're going to borrow money for anything. You're going to sign papers to those extents. You try to adopt children. You're going to sign some papers for that too. You see, anything that's valuable, anything of real significance usually happens within the confines of some sort of a covenant relationship. And you know what? That's exactly the main point of this whole passage. This whole passage is focusing on what God would do for Abram, how God watches over Abram, takes care of Abram. Why? Because of that covenant relationship. The covenant was announced back in chapter 12. At the end of chapter 13, you remember right after Abram told Lot, you can take whatever land you want. You go one direction, I'll go the other. God says to Abram at the end of chapter 13, he says, right from where you're standing, I want you to look every direction, north, south, east, and west, which, by the way, recognize that includes the direction Lot just went. And God says, it's all yours. I'm going to give it all to you. My covenant is with you, Abram. When we get to chapter 15, God's going to make it official. And I'll explain more about that when we get there next week. This passage that we're looking at is sandwiched by the covenant. It's all about this covenant relationship between God and Abraham. And that's where he finds his significance. Why was he able to just take off after those other kings that had just beat up these other five kings? I think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think also the passage in Philippians that the Apostle Paul wrote says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, inside this covenant relationship with God, we have significance in who we are. You see, if we try to find our significance in anything else, it fades. But true significance also, we're going to take it a step further, true significance is found in Christ. The first part of the sermon, the true significance is found in covenant relationship, is found in the passage that we're looking at. That thing is hemmed in on both sides by this covenant relationship with God. That's why Abram was able to do the things that he was doing. That's why Melchizedek came and blessed him. The second part of this is recognizing where that passage fits in the greater scheme of things. In other words, the covenant relationship that God established with Abram has a bigger context. It has this, this, this redemptive history is what it's tracking. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. From the time mankind sinned, God began to outline this redemptive history that would happen where God promised that this deliverer was going to come and crush the head of the serpent someday. He exercised mercy toward the people by offering the lamb, killing the lamb and clothing them, covering their guilt with the hide of the lamb instead of their own death. So something else died in their place. And then you start to see this redemptive history start to be tracked through pointed toward Abel and then to his brother Seth and then Enoch. It talks about him walking with God and Noah being delivered from the flood. And, and it just has this history of God's redeeming work on this earth. Well, when you get to Abram, the covenant that's made with Abram is to Abram and that God would make him into a great family that would become a great nation that would in turn bless the whole world. Well, we know that that's pointing forward, that one day through the descendants of Abraham would come this serpent-killing deliverer, this Savior. And so when we look back on it and we see that Abraham's significance is found 
in this covenant relationship with God. This covenant relationship with God points to the new covenant found in Jesus Christ. And so our significance is not found just within covenant relationship in general, but specifically in our covenant relationship that we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's pointing to. And we even get hints of that with the events that happen here. Because notice this character that comes, this Melchizedek. When Abram comes back from the battle, two people come out to meet him. And it's quite a contrast in these two people. One of them is the wicked king of Sodom. And he's coming out to make a deal. He wants his stuff back. And he's wondering how much of it he can get. And so he wants to make a deal with Abram. Hey, you know what? Just give me the people. Uh, You keep the money. Abram's reaction to him is very interesting too. Very different reaction to the two. Because one of them comes out and says, well, you know what, let's make a deal. Give me the people. You keep the, you keep the money. Abram says, no, you know what, I don't want anything of yours. Whatever the people have eaten that was yours, that went to win it back for you, that's, you, you paid for that. And the guys that came with me that I was allied to, you pay them whatever their share in this is. He says, but you know what, I don't, I'm not taking anything from you. I don't want a thread off a piece of clothing. I don't want a sandal, a strap from off your sandal. Why? Because the honor and the glory of God was at stake. Abram said, I don't want anybody saying that Sodom, that wicked city, made me rich. I don't want to, I'm not capitalizing on that. His blessings would come from God and not through the king of Sodom. But he was very welcoming to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an interesting character in the Bible. Uh, You think about Genesis, talk about a book that has a lot of genealogies in it. You get to Melchizedek and we don't know hardly a thing about him. And he's called in this place the king of Salem. Is probably referring to Jerusalem. There's a lot of mystery surrounding Melchizedek. Who was this guy? So much so that many people, some people think that he's a theophany. Now, theophany is when, when Jesus Christ shows up before Jesus Christ was born. Right? Because he existed eternally, obviously. He became a man at his conception, at his birth. And so... You have these places in the Bible where it'll talk about the angel of the Lord doing this thing or something like that, and it looks very much like it'll refer to him as the angel of the Lord. Then it'll also maybe later refer to him as the Lord, and then it'll call him an angel of the Lord again. So you're like, well, who is it? And in those instances, it seems very clear that what we have is Jesus Christ acting before Jesus Christ becomes a man, stepping into history at these different places, but he hasn't come to be our Savior, our Redeemer yet. Well, some people think Melchizedek must be Christ. Now, I don't, I don't think that that's true. I don't know. It's a, it's, there's enough mystery around it that I just kind of say, well, I'm not really sure. But I don't think that's the case. I think he is probably the king of an area, Salem, up Jerusalem. Now, the word Salem means peace. So uh, the book of Hebrews refers to it and says, look, he is the king of Salem, which in, by interpretation, king of peace. And he's also, his name, Melchizedek, means righteousness. And so he's kind of king of righteousness, king of peace. So he's a very good type of Christ. He's a very good image bearer of Jesus Christ. And so I think that that's why he's here at this point, is really to one more thing, one more arrow that's pointing us ahead to Jesus Christ. Hebrews, in that book, looks back at Melchizedek and this incident, and it looks back at this guy surrounded with mystery. We don't know, like I said, we don't know who he was. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know his lineage. And Hebrews just kind of uses, it uses the mystery that surrounds him. And it says, look, this guy was a priest. We know that he's superior to Abram 
because Abram paid tithes, which means a tenth. Abram paid a tenth, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And when you think about it, Abram's descendants would become the Levitical priesthood, which is going to also point to Christ. So you could say the Levitical priesthood was paying tithe to the Melchizedek priesthood, which means the Melchizedek priesthood is a higher priesthood than the, the one that Moses would institute later. All of these things pointed to Christ. And so Hebrews takes Melchizedek and says, look, Melchizedek, we don't know when he was born or when he died. Kind of reminds us of Jesus. He has no beginning and no end. He just takes some of the mystery that surrounds Melchizedek and he says, look, that mystery even points us to Christ. And so we see in this incident right here back in the book of Genesis, kind of as an, an arrow in the sand, pointing us further toward Christ. Our significance is found within covenant relationship, but not just any covenant relationship. This covenant relationship with Abraham pointed to the covenant relationship with Christ, and that is where our significance lies. When Jesus Christ came, he would fulfill all the covenants and give us the significance that we need before God and in our lives.